Welcome to the Saturday Blitz Podcast with your tailgater crew, John Mitchell and Zach Bogalki. Welcome back to the Saturday Blitz Podcast after our week off, everybody. I'm Zach Bogalki here again with John Mitchell. This week, we're going to be talking about the ongoing Brew McCoy saga, uh, looking a bit at uh, the history of integration in college football. And then finally, we're going to do a little bit of looking at schools that might go winless in 2019. Um, how was your week off, John? Hope you're doing well. It was good. I hope everybody had a, a good Memorial Day weekend and whatnot. So now we're excited to get back into the, the swing of things as we get closer and closer. I know we've got a lot on tap coming up. I know a lot of the preseason magazines have hit the stands and stuff now. So that's always an exciting time for the college football offseason to have those. I always like to pick up the Athlons and the Lindys and all that just to have and get as much of that info uh, as I can during this time of year. So we're definitely excited to be back. Yeah, it is always really fun the time of year when those firsts start coming out, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it just really does feel like the beginning of the new season coming on. You know, we look at recruiting, we look at even spring practices, but once those hit, it's like the rosters that they start to lock into those really feel real and tangible because you're holding hundreds of pages in your hands. So. Right. Yeah, and one player who we don't quite know yet where he's going, though we have a good idea of it, um, is Brew McCoy. That was the first topic we were going to be looking at this week. So, um, you know, just a little bit of background into this. Obviously, he visited Texas back in September. The school was courting him. USC had the obvious home home field advantage. A lot of his friends were playing there, um, and... He originally decided on USC back in January. You have all the, you know, brouhaha around Cliff Kingsbury signing and then leaving as offensive coordinator. He ends up deciding to go to Texas, has a great spring practice, you know, and dealing a bit with some some nagging injury issues, but puts in a good spring game, looks great in early practices. Looks like he could be a real promise for the future on uh, Tom Herman's team. And then, um, you know, homesickness sets in, whatever else sets in, and he's back in the transfer portal. And, you know, that officially happened on the last day of May. And now here we are, you know, sort of looking at him most likely going back to USC. But whenever somebody's in the transfer portal, that's obviously not a guarantee. So... What's, you know, like, this seems like one of the wackiest stories we've seen in memory of, you know, transferring before a player even hits school. Yeah, I mean, twice now, right? Because, I mean, he was initially committed to USC, was going to go there, decided at the, you know, last minute that he wanted to get out of his letter of intent, signed a letter of intent with USC, and then got out of it to go to Texas, and now apparently is wanting to go back to USC, and he hasn't... Formally said USC, but he said in the statement he released that he wanted to go home. Uh, and home is obviously for a kid who played at, um, was it Modern Day High School? Yeah, they're uh, in USC is home, you know, obviously is what he means by that as well. So I, it's definitely strange. I mean, we've both been on record to be all four kids being able to have freedom of choice. And whatnot, I do wonder if, you know, there is a point where you kind of draw a line somewhere when it comes to that. Um, I, I don't know. My my concern, I think, with it, Zach, is 
this saga probably doesn't help when it comes to the coaches who are already starting to pitch a fit about the transfer portal. You know, I feel like Brew McCoy is going to be the kind of the test case for that. They're going to all point to that like, oh, you see what happens when we let these kids transfer with impunity. You get the Brew McCoys of the world who transfer twice before playing a college down or even really probably completing a college class. So, yeah, it it, it is kind of a weird situation. Again, I, I still feel I still feel in his situation that, you know, it's different, and I for him, and I think it's something that everybody should take into account. Is this is a kid who committed to play for USC, and that was home, and he wanted to stay there, but he committed to play for Cliff Kingsbury. You know, they had the coaching switch at offensive coordinator, and you know, Kingsbury is one of the main reasons he decided to sign there uh, during the signing period. So then, you know, his second choice was Texas, and he had a good relationship with Tom Herman. He decided that, so he goes to Texas, and then, like you said, homesickness sets in pretty quick. Uh, for a lot of kids who move away that far away from home, you know, L.A. to Austin. And, you know, so I think it's understandable. I, I get how this could have happened. I don't think it's the best look. Uh, and I worry that it could be this could be the situation that kind of ruins it for everyone else. I don't know if I want to put it that way, but kind of the the final straw that makes some coaches really try to push for some other kind of legislation. See, what it kind of looked like to me was a particular Temple head coach that never actually coached a game at Temple. You know, like we see, we see, we see bouncing around in the coaching ranks. Um, I'm going to willfully choose not to name names there, but we'll just say, you know, a particular Temple head coach that never actually coached a game at Temple. It, it, it sounds a lot like that sort of situation. Or, you know, like he showed some kind of genuine commitment to Texas. He went through spring. He gave it an actual shot. He went through a whole semester. And, you know, like if you go out as in, in a, at, you know, the middle of the year, especially coming in as a, a winter enrollee or a spring enrollee, I'm not sure whether they're on quarters or semesters there at Texas. But uh, regardless... You know, you come in in the middle of a school year and enroll, it's always going to be tough to adjust in the first place as a student. And, you know, obviously to do that as a football player, there's some bit of an easier adjustment because you're coming in and you're part of the team. Like you have you have a core group of people who you're going to be hanging out with regularly at least. So that makes the adjustment somewhat easier, but you're still coming in in the middle of the year. That's not an easy thing to do. And so, you know, I think that combined with, you know, the uncertainty of not knowing what was going to happen at USC sort of drove him to a place where it was at least stable at that moment. But then, you know, he sees Graham Harrell come in as the offensive coordinator now at USC, and it, it offers some potential that he also saw in Kingsbury to play in a similar sort of you know, air raid, heavy passing offense where he'll get his touches with the football at receiver. So I think that came off as attractive. And I think that's part, you know, I think that's a reason why they're obviously the front runner to land him again, coming back out of the portal. So I, I, you know, I, I think it's, it, it is an odd case. It really is a weird test case, you know, a similar thing. <laughs> that comes to mind for me is, um, 
you know, the case of Randy Moss where he bounced around before never playing a game, you know, before ever playing a game, first Notre Dame and then Florida State and then, you know, finally ending up at Marshall. But but that was obviously a very different extenuating circumstance. Um, you know, uh, we haven't seen McCoy get into any sort of legal troubles, obviously. You know, that was at the heart of Moss's bouncing around between schools. So there's really not even a corollary in that, especially since, you know, coming in as a true freshman looking to play, um, you know, I, I think it really is uncharted territory. And you, as you said, you could see this lead to detractors toward the transfer portal begin to make their case against it. At the same time, he's definitely looking at sitting out a redshirt year now. Like that, it, I I think it's very unlikely that he's going to get another waiver to to transfer over and play right away at USC. It'd be very surprising, at least, to see that happen. And I think he's okay with that. I think it's you know not the worst thing in the world either, especially since you have even more talent coming in in the twenty twenty class. So, it, you know, I think in the end, yes, you're going to see some people really rail against it from a, a the transfer portal is terrible standpoint. And, you know, on the other hand, it's, it is what it is. And if you're going to let some people move around, you might, you know, you might as well allow freedom of movement within the rules. And obviously the rules are probably going to include a year sitting out on a red shirt. Yeah, I think you had a good point about the Temple situation uh, as well, you know, leaving. And I get, it's different in a way, but, you know, also aside from Manny Diaz, aside from college football, too, if you look at even another sport, for instance, I don't know if you remember back in, I think it was 2010, 2011, Billy Donovan, when he was mm-hmm. the head coach uh, uh, for Florida's basketball team, he left Florida for 48 hours or so to be the head coach of the Orlando Magic in the NBA. And then he had a change of heart, bolted from Orlando, and went back to Florida. And Florida obviously welcomed him back with open arms, just like USC will be welcoming Brew McCoy back with open arms. And the thing is, with with a player like McCoy, he's worth it. You're talking about one of the, arguably one of the 10 best players in this past recruiting class. And this could be a massive win for Clay Helton. Uh, and I don't, I don't know that – I don't think he'll get another waiver either, but this is a guy who could be a really big weapon, very versatile weapon. He's a big, big receiver, so he's got, you know, the ability to do a lot of different things. So, you know, and my worry is – you know, I already pointed out what my worry was. So I, I think he's definitely worth it, though, and that's why you're seeing the bouncing around. If he – you know, a month later, wanted to come back to Texas. I guarantee you that Tom Herman would be open to, to him doing that as well. So, oh yeah, uh, I just want him to be happy with his situation and hopefully he can find what he's looking for in L.A. Yeah, certainly. And obviously the appeal of coming close to home. Totally understand that. And as you said, it's one of those situations where fans hate it when it's somebody taking off their jersey and they're absolutely going to embrace them right back if it, they're putting the jersey back on. It's just how it works in sports. That's part of the fanaticism. That's that's why we love and we hate them all at once. So right, I I haven't seen. I haven't. I don't follow him on social media, but I imagine he's got a lot of nasty stuff coming his way from from the 
the morons out there who think it's okay to send that kind of stuff to 18-year-old kids like that. So as a reminder to everyone listening, don't tweet at recruits. Don't tweet nasty things at athletes or college kids or anything, or really any athlete at all. Just grow up. How about that? You know, grow up and understand that it's all a game at the end of the day, and it's not the end of the world, and these are people. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that's really important as a reminder for everyone because I don't feel like that that's really realized by a good, decent bit of the population who – Really, if something affects their team, they just can't seem to handle it. Oh, yeah. I think especially with recruits and with athletes, you know, it, in anything surrounding the sport. I'm, I'm going to put a caveat in there because I love calling out just about anybody if they're going to say something ridiculous on Twitter. So watch out, I guess. I guess it's, you know, fair warning for those of you that end up choosing to follow me on Twitter. If I see you and follow you in turn, um, I like to call things out. So, um, but, you know, I, I think in general, if you're going to, like, harassing somebody for their performance, absolutely ridiculous. Harassing somebody for their choice of where to play the sport, absolutely ridiculous. Harassing somebody for, you know, like, Kyrie Irving's flat earth theories, absolutely <laughs> awesome. Like, it, they're, they're stirring the pot, and you might as well have some fun right back at them. Well, also, Kyrie Irving is a grown adult. Exactly. That's, that's, a, that's the other part of it. I think your, your caveat about, like, recruits, just leave them alone. Honestly, right. let them be them. You know, like, if you're going to be, like, really fanatical about it, and you have to follow their Twitter account to see what they're tweeting about that day more power to you. I, I personally don't have time to do that with every recruit that's out there. Even, even the top 10 recruits would, would drive my Twitter feed nuts. So if that's really your thing, awesome. Don't harass them though. Yeah. And it, the funny thing is, is, you know, what I was really getting up that about uh, at with the Jersey comment is, you know, fans of USC, I'm sure, I'm sure there was some swirling in cyberspace when he decided to go to Texas initially, when he flipped to Texas. And uh, I'm sure those fans are going to almost universally welcome him right back once he puts on, once he puts on the Trojans colors again. I kind of hope he put he decides to go to UCLA instead, just because everyone's heads will explode out there. <laughs> oh, it would be quite the coup for Chip Kelly, that's for sure. And it would be obviously getting to still be close to home, and it would be the ultimate troll job. It certainly would. He might honestly become my favorite player if that happened. Oh That'd my be god, just unbelievably awesome. <laughs> it it would be. The, the most beautiful culmination of what has really been a month-long saga with this story, if that was the way it ultimately flipped. Um, well, here's crossing our fingers for that to happen, just as the most fun story we could possibly write and talk about. Um, let us know on Twitter what you think might be the most fun flip for him if he does not end up at USC, as we all most likely expect. Um, but for now, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about some college football history. So stay tuned. 
Welcome back from the break, everybody. I'm Zach here with John again. Uh, during this segment, we're going to be talking a bit about something I've written about in the past couple of Sunday morning quarterbacks that have come out on the Saturday Blitz website, um, looking specifically at the history of, you know, black college football, both at historical black colleges and universities, and just in terms of integration in the sport and looking at all of those stories around that. So, you know, we're going to look at that a little bit today and just talk a little bit further. Um, but first, I just kind of wanted to, you know, just put it on the table for you, John. What's, you know, one the first thing that comes to mind for you when you think about integration in college football? Well, being from Alabama, the, the one that always really stuck out to me was when uh, the University of Alabama's football program finally integrated in 1971. Uh, with Wilbur Jackson becoming the first um, black athlete to compete for Alabama football and uh, Bear Bryant being integral in, you know, kind of getting that to actually go through because you're talking about a period of time at the university as well where there wasn't many black people being accepted or maybe even any at all at that point. I can't remember. I think the segregation had ended at the university just a few years prior um, so you're not that long removed from George Wallace, the governor of the state, standing on the the steps of the university and proclaiming, you know, segregation today, segregation tomorrow and segregation forever to a just massive applause of yeah. people who, you know, were all aboard uh, that kind of thing. So you're talking just a few years down the road from that. I don't remember the specific year for the George Wallace speech, you know, sometime, I believe, in the 1960s. And, and then, you know, 1971, Wilbur Jackson coming in to the University of Alabama uh, and getting to play football. And, you know, that was a huge deal. And he was a very, very good football player. Not that that is the thing that matters the most, but at this point he still holds several Alabama records. Um he owns the school record for yards per carry. He averaged 7.2 yards per carry in his three years with the with the program. Ended up being the ninth overall pick in 1974 to the San Francisco 49ers. So uh, a, a hell of a football player Wilbur Jackson was. And that's the one that, you know, if I think about segregation in college football, that's the one that hits the closest to home to me because that was, you know, my school, my team. Certainly. What, and I think that's the thing is for most people, the traditional storyline tends to look toward SEC schools, looks at those stories like Alabama, especially the Alabama story, you know, around, there's always the, the sort of myth around scheduling USC the year before, and looking at the fact that, that, you know, that was sort of the wake-up call for the state of we've got to bring in, you know, the best talent we can possibly find regardless of race. And obviously, you know, Wilbur Jackson was already there on campus. He, you know, he just couldn't play as a freshman. So it wasn't like that game was actually the tipping point, but I think it put it into the minds of a fan base that was still in many ways hesitant to to integrate as so many were throughout the south but you know that's obviously the traditional storyline we follow the path of daryl hill becoming the first you know black player in any southern conference when he started for maryland in 1963 in the acc 
and then, you know, Jerry Levias and uh, John Hill Westbrook, both in the Southwest Conference in 1966. And then, you know, the SEC barrier is broken a year later with Nate Northington at Kentucky. And these are, you know, it's sort of the linear progression that we tend to look at as fans. But, you know, the thing I've really been interested in lately is the fact that integration wasn't something that just affected these conferences that were at traditionally segregated schools. Um, Obviously, coming from Oregon, one that really hit me was the case of uh, Bobby Williams and Charles Robinson, who were the first two black players on the University of Oregon. Uh, it was the, then the Webfoots rather than the, uh, the Ducks. But, you know, the first Oregon players who weren't white. And they show up on campus in 1925 or 1926. It's a year after Oregon's exclusion laws are finally repealed off the books. So for those of you out there who don't know, Oregon was founded as basically a white utopia. And there were laws on the books from its, you know, on its constitution that said black people cannot own property in the state. They cannot cross into the state. They cannot be in the state. And obviously, you know, that's a fiction that can never be entirely policed, but even in cities like Portland, you saw very segregated neighborhoods and redlining going on well into the 20th century. And so there is a real legacy of that. And so to have these two players come onto campus right after the exclusion laws are, are stricken from the record, huge deal. And these two players, you know, they meet with some some hesitation about where in the world are they going to stay on campus. They obviously can't stay here and they can't stay there. Um, you know, there's a big stink about this. And finally, they get put in this segregated space in sort of the basement of one of the, the you know, dorm halls. And finally, the rest of the team lobbies for them to, to be included in the, the team's hall. And just to be able to all stay together and, you know, the administration finally relents to that. And, you know, these players stay there and play for the team. But it also speaks to the fact that what happens at one school in a state doesn't necessarily happen at the other. Because it takes another 25 years, 25 or more years before Oregon State fields its first black player. And I think that's one of the stories that we kind of lose when we talk about integration is the fact that it isn't just a Southern thing. Absolutely. I think that's interesting. I think there's, I think that something that could be overlooked potentially, and that is how the the big colleges in the States like that play a role in kind of desegregation throughout the rest of the state too. And obviously segregation laws were no longer, a thing by the 1970s when some of these stories were taking place, but there was obviously still, particularly in some of the more Southern states, some really heated racial tension. Uh, A lot of people who were, you know, outright refusing change. And you see that anytime there's some big kind of change like that, anytime throughout the history of this country, there's a lot of resistance. So I, I wonder how, you know, watching for, you know, the university of Alabama, for instance, how, the people in the state watching Wilbur Jackson play and thrive and helping the team win 
ultimately a national championship in 1973, what that did to maybe change some hearts, change some minds and everything, but you're still talking, um, there's areas everywhere that still have issues with that and can't help but make, you know, offhanded comments and stuff like that. Cause there's a, a story that I've talked about with you in the past, Zach, and I've written about actually for the website um, about Stevie Cannon, who was a running back in the early 1970s for Jacksonville high school, which was actually my alma mater and playing a game at Welburn high school, which both of my parents graduated from there. And I believe my mom was actually in school when this happened. And he died on the football field at Welburn in a road game after spending the first half, just running all over him. And there used to be, I don't know if the reel is still online, but there used to be a reel from the hit. You'll see him going out of bounds and then a Welburn player diving crown of his helmet first at Speedy Cannon's head. And ultimately that's the shot that actually killed him. And the controversy surrounding that all comes from the fact that Welburn's band used to play Dixie. Mm -hmm. That was their, basically their fight song. That was their big thing. So you would have rebel flags in the stand. You would have that. I remember them playing Dixie when I was a kid and because I would I went yeah. to elementary school there and I remember that still to this day. So I you know, and that's a little bit off topic, but it's one of the stories that really always hits me when we talk about any kind of desegregation and any other kind of racial uh situations when it pertains to football. So I do wonder how much maybe Wilbur Jackson, maybe some of the players at Oregon that you talked about, maybe helped and or you know hurt some other uh in some other ways i know that hopefully people seeing them would make you know some at least and if you need something like that to be the thing that changes your heart you know obviously you've got some more deep-rooted issues that you need to work out and everything but i do wonder how much sports have helped in that regard, um, in every other area of life. Certainly. Well, and I think the thing about sports in just a broader way is that it, it allows you to encounter things that you wouldn't normally otherwise. Like, so as a kid from Wyoming, I was lucky enough to grow up in Jackson Hole. Tons of people traveling from around the world got to mix with a lot of different cultures but you move to the other side of the mountain pass in, in either direction, and you're not going to get that sort of interaction. Oftentimes for those individuals, what you see on television and that sort of diversity you see there is as diverse as it gets. And it's that way through a lot of areas of the country, especially sort of the spans of the West. And this, you know, I think that's why the Oregon story resonates, both because of the way the laws were on the books there and the fact that immediately after you have those laws taken off the books, it's almost like those players are there as a way to sort of normalize it in the public's mind as, you know, this is just something that's so. And sports are just a big enough catalyst that, even then, back in the 20s, when Oregon football was really, I mean, they were coming off of the, the late teens when they, under like Shy Huntington, they had a couple of Rose Bowl teams and everything. And so they were still a decent squad and it, it did resonate with the public. And so, yeah, I think that is something that really does stick. But I think the other side of that too is we're talking about the story of 19, you know, the 1920s and 
one of the early forerunners, you know, sort of a vanguard of, of desegregation on the football field. Um, but then you also see other stories. Like we often look at the SEC as sort of that last bastion of, of fighting against integration. But the, can you name the last three schools who, who desegregated? I can't. I would assume it's Southern, but based on the way you're talking, I'm going to guess that it's not. So, so you're right with two of them. LSU and Ole Miss were two of them. Ole Miss would have been would have been a guess, and if you want to throw me off a little, yeah. <laughs> the the third one is BYU. Ah, uh, okay. And so you know, like coming into looking at what I was writing for this Sunday's column, I was you know looking at some of these other stories outside of the South and. You know, it just really struck me, given the story around Wyoming and the Black 14 that protested and were kicked off the team by Lloyd Eaton because they wanted to wear black armbands in protest of, you know, the Church of Latter-day Saints policy against black members and against black clergy members specifically, but also just, you know, not having any black players on their team. And the whole story around that more broadly is fascinating and we don't have nearly enough time to go into that but as I was thinking about that like looking at BYU as a school that comes up as the last one is not something we tend to think about and I think that's another story that right now I obviously don't have all the information here but it's one that I'd really love to see sussed out more because that's huge like to be in that list of final three with LSU and with Ole Miss is it's really rarefied company. It's not something that is your run of the mill storyline that you'd expect to pop up. But then in a way, when you look at the history a little bit deeper, it, it kind of doesn't shock you nearly as much. Right. Right. Absolutely. I do think that is one that I don't think many people would really think about. Uh, when you're talking about integration and everything like that, for sure. So that's that's definitely a great point. Yeah, and then, you know, the last thing I, I kind of want to just end with here in a point that I kind of drove home um, when I was talking about it last weekend was um, just the fact that we look at integration just as a, 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 a progress moving forward, all good sort of thing, like nothing but winners in the equation. And I think we need to to sort of back that narrative up a bit and look at historic black colleges and universities. These HBCUs lost a pipeline there. They lost a huge amount of talent as soon as players could start signing with flagship universities and start earning scholarships there. And for the individual, that's obviously a great thing. Like, no fault to any player there for taking their opportunity and, and actually going through the hell it took to get that opportunity because those those first generations of players, and I say generations because it really was the first five, six, seven recruiting classes that in many cases that it took to make this a normal thing for people in their minds, um, you know, no fault to them, but I think the thing is, is integration often looks at the individual impacts and the impacts on the schools that do integrate, and it doesn't look so much at 
schools like the HBCUs that are sort of left behind by integration and, you know, consolidated, in some cases closed down. Um, and you've only really seen in recent years, we talked about it with this, you know, um, on break with the Celebration Bowl and how that's really become sort of a new thing and how it's become, you know, the, the Black National Championship or the Historic Black Colleges National Championship. And we've seen that, you know, named by different people over time, and we've seen different bowl games take that, that sort of mantle. But it, it, on one hand, it's great to see those colleges get that recognition again because this does give them the money that they need. And at the same time, it still sort of keeps them on the margin. I think that was interesting there. I was interrupt, but uh, to me is the fact that, you know, these conferences, some of these H- conferences with the HBCUs and them have kind of come together and collectively, I believe it's the SWAC and the MEAC that have mm-hmm. decided that they don't want to be a part of the FCS playoffs. If they, they want to send their champions to the Celebration Bowl, and it's the culmination of the of the HBCUs, this HBCU National Championship game. And there's been a couple of teams, particularly at North Carolina A&T, yeah. who might have been pretty competitive in the FCS playoff these last couple of years had they had the opportunity or taken the opportunity to play in it. Because I know I watched uh, just from, again, a, a more personal one, the beginning of last season, they, they opened the season with Jacksonville State, uh, which is a college I've spent a lot of time around and with. And, and Jacksonville State's only a couple of years removed from playing for the FCS National Championship game and coming up short against Carson Wentz's North Dakota State. But, yep. you know, who didn't come up short against Carson Wentz and North Dakota State? So, <laughs> you know, You've got them, and they beat Jacksonville State to open the season last yeah. year in what was really a de facto road game because that game was played in either Mobile or Montgomery. So really, Jacksonville State had the advantage. So it'd be interesting uh, to see a team like A and T get the opportunity to do that uh, to play for uh, an FCS title game. But it just shows how much the Celebration Bowl means to those universities, how much it means to be crowned the best HBCU football team that they're willing to bypass the opportunity to win a national championship. Well, and I think there's an interesting caveat to that because if a second place team in one of those conferences is chosen by the FCS playoff committee to be in the field, um, they are allowed to go into the playoff. We did see that with NCA&T three or four years ago. I think it was the first year of the the celebration bowl or the, the one time where they didn't play in the celebration bowl game, they got selected for the FCS playoffs and they ended up being a first round ouster, but um, it, it would be interesting sometime to see like a second place team in one of those conferences, make a deep run in the playoffs, even win the FCS championship and then have them not even be the celebration bowl champion as the quote unquote, HBCU national champion. Um, I think right. that I think that'd be a really fun story to see. Um, now I've got another thing to cross my fingers for and hope I see it. So, you know, brew to UCLA and uh, two black national champions at the FCS level. It, that's you know the best I can hope for here. Um, But yeah, you know, I think that like really the takeaway I want to leave with this before we go to break is just the fact that 
there's so many more stories we can look at with this. I think we're only scratching the surface, and I think we're doing a disservice to the broader narrative when we focus on, you know, like the Southwest Conference and the Southeastern Conference and the ACC and just looking at those schools alone. I mean, you even have stories of independence like Louisville. I saw some great research on this when I was at Nash this past weekend um, by a scholar, uh, Arthur Benton at Tennessee Tech. He's doing some great research on those early Louisville teams that sort of broke the mold for independence playing in the South. And um, just in general, we need to see more of these stories coming out because there is a rich history there that sort of gets lost in the shuffle when we focus all our attention on the schools that benefited from from integration. I agree. I'd be interested to, to see a lot more of that kind of research and stuff and everything you dig into in the coming weeks and months and years and everything like that. So I appreciate I appreciate this topic. It's definitely interesting. Awesome. I hope it interested all you out there. Um, For now, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll be talking about teams that might go winless in 2019. So stay tuned. Welcome back, everybody, for our final segment of the Saturday Blitz podcast. I'm here with John today to talk about some teams that might end up going winless in 2019. Now, it's been more than 20 years since we last had a tie in college football, so that means that they're going to lose 12 games, um, or 11 if, you know, storms give them a reprieve of one loss. Um, but we're going to see the ultimate losers. Um, I know we talked about this very briefly. Um, who were some teams that immediately popped to mind for you, John, when looking at the 2019 season? Yeah, I think the first team that when we were talking about it in prelim, the first thing that came to mind without even looking at anything was Connecticut. Um, just because how just awful they, they're lucky. They didn't go winless last year. Like, honestly, they probably should have, I believe they, their one win was over an FCS opponent last year. And I want to say it was like a shootout. If I remember correctly, where they, they still somehow managed to give up an absurd amount of points. Yeah, they went 56 to 49 over Rhode Island last year. So that was their one win. I mean, that's embarrassing, you know, and they, and it was a full season's worth of that. They were so bad defensively. And honestly, there's probably not going to be that much improvement this year on the defensive side of the wall. The good news for Randy Edsall is that they can't get worse on that side of the ball. Obviously, they're, the only way to go is up when you look at how bad they were last season. Because they weren't just bad, Zach. Not from it a was historically season. bad. It was historically awful yeah. is how bad they were defensively last year. So that's the first team that came to mind for me, I think, just because it seems like they might be, could be just as bad, if not even worse next season, I think. So what was the first team or that was that the first team that came to your head right away? See, honestly, I I was doing my damnedest to look at power five schools as well. So I figured I would look there. And um the first one that pops to mind is Georgia Tech, just with a combination of changing coaches, changing styles, change you know, changing an entire philosophy and doing it around a Power 5 schedule. And, you know, I, I think in general, if I was looking at a school that sort of fits the formula 
for what might, you know, what might be the ingredients that cause you to go 0 and 12 over the course of a season, I think they take off a lot of those check marks for me. That's a good one. Yeah, that's a really good point. I I couldn't really figure out a power five team I thought that had the opportunity to really go in 12, but I think maybe they could be the one just if nothing really clicks well for Jeff Collins in year one because they've got the personnel changes, because they've been recruiting linemen specifically for their option offense, because they don't really have a quarterback who's used to running a more traditional style of offense and all that. They could definitely have some growing pains, I think, I think if Jeff Collins can squeeze out four or five wins this year, he's he's a miracle worker. And I I do think the future is very bright in Atlanta. I like what he's doing on the recruiting trail. Year one's going to be rough, though, and uh, I don't know that they'll go 0-12, but you can definitely see the potential for everything lining up to lead to that. Um, I... Power five was difficult because you're usually it's it's rare that a power five team goes winless. And I don't think Kansas, who's a, a recent one who's done that in recent seasons, I don't think they're going to be bad enough next season to lose out. Uh, another team that I briefly thought about in the power five, but I don't think it'll happen is Arkansas after yeah. going two and 10 last season. Uh, I think they'll be a little bit better this year, though, so I don't see that being the case. But you definitely got plenty of Power 5 teams that are going to have the opportunity to go winless in conference. But so many teams nowadays play, from the Power 5 especially, play some kind of cupcake somewhere from the FCS that they're going to eke out at least one victory, probably two, when they play a lower-level team. So there's more definitely a group of five teams who have the opportunity, particularly the ones who schedule up and they're yeah. playing teams like Arkansas and stuff like that three or four times a season because they're playing three or four power five teams in their um, non-conference schedule. Um, so another team I thought of from the from the group of five was Rice. Oh, yeah. Uh, they lost a good bit from last year, and they weren't very good anyway. I think they won two games last year, and, you know, they lost – um, a lot of offensive uh, contributors, particularly a quarterback. They've got a new quarterback coming in. They could be one of the worst teams in the in the FBS next season. So Rice was another one that really uh, really came to mind. Did you have any others from the Power Five that you you thought? Um, you know, Power Five is obviously tough. Um, I'm inclined as a Ducks fan to hope that Oregon State does. I think they're they're just a, and at the same time. It's always more fun when the Civil War is worth something. So, it, right. it, on one hand, it's fun to see him down, and on the other hand, it, at this point, it'd be nice to see him step up a little bit. Um, so, I'm not going to wish that on them by any means, but I, I think it's something where it, if you had to pick out another school, they're one where it's just so barren there at this point, and they're still in such a rebuilding process that it's possible, but you know, Georgia tech, they've got a lot more returning talent and a lot more returning production from, from the 2018 roster than Georgia tech does. And I think that's another reason why the yellow jackets just shot up red flags for me. Um, so yeah, there's really nobody else from the power five that sticks out. Um, obviously there are a couple more group of five schools. Um, I look at San Jose state, which had just, has had a couple of really rough seasons under Brent Brennan. He's really, you know, 
on on the hottest of hot seats, I think, coming into this season, just because of what we saw Mike McIntyre do there at San Jose State, and the right. fact that there is some sort of potential there that can be had for a school that's recruiting kids to the South Bay. I mean, if you're looking at opportunities in the Mountain West, would you rather go play, you know, south of Silicon Valley, or would you rather go play in Laramie or Fort Collins? Um, right, absolutely. I, I think for many kids, it, it's it, if you put it on the table like that and really show them what's on offer, you have a school that could be a sleeping group of five giant there. I mean, San Jose is even probably a for most kids a nicer environment to go to than like a Fresno State, which has obviously positioned itself as a great school. Um, I won't quite speak to Boise State because having been there last week, um, they're in the city of trees, as they like to call it. Um, It is a really beautiful place. I could understand why kids would want to go play in Boise, and it really is a growing city. Um, So it was a fun visit there. Um, But yeah, there is something to be said about a school like that where you've got some kind of advantages, at least against your conference opponents in recruiting. So mm-hmm. after a certain point, you've got to make something out of that. And I think, you know, we've mentioned it in the past. We like the idea of a year zero for a coach, especially one coming in where, you know, the guy that the coach that's leaving is leaving with a lot of his initial recruiting classes at the same time as they go pro. It may, you know, it makes it so that there ought to be some sort of buffer zone there some sort of leeway that's given. But I think by year three, at the very least, you've got to see some sort of results. And, you know, if at least five wins is something that they've got to hit, and I think they're probably going to be closer to the two wins, if not lower scale than that. Right. No, I agree. And, I mean, the, the problem there is, You've, we've seen recent seasons them be able to actually win some games. I mean, like you mentioned, Mike McIntyre, he had some success. Obviously, he had early struggles as well as yeah. anybody would trying to build a program. But he did build that program to, you know, actually be really, really competitive. Um, circling back to UConn, it's kind of interesting because they, they went the retreat route and they brought back Randy Edsall, who had had so much success at Connecticut uh, prior to leaving and trying – his hand at Maryland and ultimately getting fired there. But he had a lot of success at UConn the first time around, had really built that program into something that looked looked at least somewhat sustainable. And now they're the laughing stock, one of the laughing stocks of college football, especially last season. They probably were the laughing stock of college football. Um, and I, I think it's interesting with UConn, I don't know if they'll ever be able to get back to that level, and maybe they'd be better suited looking at potentially dropping down to the FCS level at some point down the road because it's tough. It's a tough job. I think everything really is a tough job uh, to get UConn football. Uh, obviously, the basketball program, men's and women's side, has had a ton of success, but it's easier to recruit 12 to 15 kids than it is to recruit 65, 70 kids. So Ed Saul's another one of the coaches we talked about. You know, we kind of stuck with Power 5 for the hot seat talk, but he's definitely one who's already on the hot seat at UConn just because I don't know how he survives another one or two win season unless there's some really big steps in the right direction and 
eight or nine of those ten losses are within a couple of scores. Yeah, well, and I think, you know, you mentioned it's his second stint there, and I think it really speaks to the fact that that first stint was when it was still the Big East, and they still had an automatic qualifying spot into one of the BCS Bowl games. Like, really, the conditions for success were set up so differently the first time he was there that... I think fans kind of have an unrealistic expectation of what he could bring back to the table. And you just don't have as much there as an American Athletic Conference team. They like to call themselves part of the Power Six. But unless you actually have the seat at the table, you can call yourself whatever you want. And the, the thing is, is the Big East at that time didn't necessarily have that same sort of sort of sway, but they got in early enough when it was still the Miamis and Virginia Techs of the world on the table playing those games, and um, they actually did have some sway on a national title level. You know, those early Michael Vick teams, the, the stellar Miami teams of the early parts of the 21st century, all of those play a huge factor in the Big East still having that at a point when those schools are all gone and a UConn can step up and fill that void. Now, trying to do that in the AAC, do that as a, a, as a mid-major, which is rightfully the position of a school like UConn most likely, um, but to do it as a mid-major in a conference that's trying to position itself as major and is really grappling with having lost its status and its stature. And you see yeah. it, you see its members doing that as well. So I think UConn is a really, really interesting study there in that sort of like fall from grace in a lot of ways because of what the conference has done. We saw TCU sort of fluctuate like that as well after the Southwest Conference collapses. And it's really not until they anchor in the Mountain West that they start to really get back to a point where they can become a power conference team again. Obviously, I'm not going to say the Huskies are going to become the next Horn Frogs by any means, but um, I think you might be right that finding stability in a, a in FCS conference for their football team might be a good idea. You know, I. Uh, it was before I even started writing here for this website, but I wrote for a previous website, a multi-part series looking at FCS teams making that transition to the 1A level. And it was looking at teams since the 90s. And so UConn was one of those teams that had made the transition up. Right. Idaho was another one on those lists, and we've already seen them make the drop back right. down to the big sky. And I think as teams start to realize this sort of Fool's gold that was there in looking at what's possible jumping up to the FBS, you're going to see more teams make that move because it's either that or you become a team like Pacific, which completely dropped their football program after the 97 or 98 season, just completely cuts it out of the picture. And I don't think anybody wants that to happen. Right, and it's all about revenue because you can either be an FBS team like UConn is right now and you can get your ass kicked 11 times this <laughs> season or you can drop down to the FCS level and you can be competitive. 
And I know it would take, it's a transition. It's a few years transition because obviously fans, students and everything like that would be disappointed to see that drop down, to not be going to that. But if you start winning games at the FCS level, then you're going to get the interest back in the program. And maybe like you said, and it could be eventually too a, a, a situation where they get their bearings back and they're able to make the transition back upwards. Uh, back to the FBS down the line. I think what you mentioned about Edsall is pretty interesting too because it is such a vastly different landscape than it was when he was first at UConn. It totally is coming from the Big East, having that seat at the table, and now coming back when they're in the American and they don't have that seat at the table. And he didn't inherit a lot at UConn no. uh, coming in, coming back for the second stint, but you got to expect more than this. I mean, you can't have a defense that's just getting pillaged like they were getting pillaged. That's going to fall uh, not just on the defensive coordinator, but it's going to fall on the head coach certainly uh, as well. So, well, you know, I don't know what the answer is, but they're definitely a team I could see that, you know, struggles to win any games again next season. And maybe it's going to take a, a big change and maybe some kind of risk-taking coach wants to take that job. The advantage TCU has is they've had Gary Patterson there for a long, long time now who was able to build them up yeah. in the Mountain West and then transition into the into the Big 12. And maybe UConn's able to find that person. The problem is as soon as that person – there's not a lot of Gary Pattersons out there, right, because everyone's looking for the next big thing, you know. You got Scott Frost at Central Florida who could have been like Patterson had he stayed at Central Florida, and eventually maybe UCF jumps up into the ACC or, or something like that down the line, but instead he bolts and heads to, you know, Nebraska, which you can't blame him for doing no. because that's his alma mater and a school that obviously means a lot to him. But there's just not a lot of Gary Pattersons in the world who are willing to stick it out with a program like TCU for as long as he did. And now he's in a position where he didn't have to go anywhere. And he's still coaching at the power five level uh, at a school that has the potential to win big 12 championships, has the potential to compete even for national championships. Yeah. And I mean, I think the only real sort of corollary you can see to that is Kyle Whittingham at Utah having, you know, right. taken over for Meyer right after that. And, you know, kept that continuity having been there on Meyer's staff as a coordinator and then continuing on. Um, and, you know, we also saw it with Chris Peterson for a long time at Boise State, but ultimately he never saw the returns like Patterson and Whittingham had bumping up to Power Five conferences. And finally, to get that opportunity, he had to go to Seattle to make it happen because it's just one of those things where Boise State's never going to land in a power five conference as long as the situation is set up as it is. Um, you know, maybe 10, 15 years down the line, the way that city is growing. Um, and I, like I said, I got to see it for my first time in two decades and it is growing immensely. And I think as more, you know, industries start to move there, especially tech industries, you're going to see the the money and all of the interest continue to flow there. You're going to see TV sets, TV sets there, which is obviously the big part. And coupled with Spokane in the area and the fact that you could have a rivalry with Washington State, we might see it down the line. I'm obviously not going to hold my breath, though. And it, I think Brian Harson will have moved on by the time that finally happens. I don't think he'll stick around long enough for that to happen. So, 
Um, you know, that's a little bit off topic, though. Um, were there any other schools that stuck out to you as teams that might go winless? No, I mean, you've got a couple other the smaller schools, teams like UTEP, who always struggle to kind of eke out games. But none of the more uh, more prominent schools, I think, that might uh, fail to win a game. I Again, like we said, the Power 5 level is so difficult. you got to really work hard to lose every game. Sometimes I wonder what's more difficult. Is it winning every game or losing every game? Because you really got to try hard in either instance to do either. I think it's a fair point. Yeah, the only other teams I really had jotted down on my list were independents like UMass and New Mexico State. I think both of them just have those sort of systemic disadvantages in um, setting up their schedule that make it harder to recruit and turn. And, you know, all of that swirl just puts them at a disadvantage. I also wrote down Central Michigan just in terms of the returning talent that they have. Um, right. in what could be an interesting Mac West race this year. So, um, and obviously that's, that's more of a long shot one. Just when I was putting is like, uh, mention it if the time is there, but, uh, they're one I could see just like, if things all fall terribly for them, it, it, it's something that could happen. But again, like you said, you really have to try hard at this level. No single team went can like 0 and 12 or 0 and 11 last season. Everyone had right. at least one win. Yeah, and I mean, Lord willing, <coughs> Liberty loses every game next season, but you know, we're not that lucky. That's another one of that's another one for the wish list for twenty for the twenty nineteen college football season. Yeah, well, I think that's the perfect place to sort of sag out and. Uh, Call this a wrap, everybody. It was great getting to talk college football with you again. Uh, both actually getting to talk here with John and getting to talk for all of you out there, um, especially after a week off, um, sort of made me realize how much I appreciate getting to do this every week. Absolutely. Uh, same way. It was tough taking the week off, honestly. We had life gets in the way every now and then, but, you know, we're at least even closer now to the college football season. And like we said earlier, the magazines hitting the stands really makes it feel uh, even realer now. So we definitely both recommend grabbing those who are always chock full of good information. And we'll be hitting on a lot more stuff, really getting into the, the nitty gritty and really starting to preview the upcoming college football season in future episodes, which is for me, Zach, super exciting. And I know it's super exciting for you as well. Oh, yeah, we'll be talking about it, you know, really within the next couple of weeks. We're going to start launching into some of these different different topics leading up to the new season. So um, we're both really excited about it. Hope you all are out there as well. Uh, definitely be sure to grab as much literature as possible so that you can call us out on anything that we get wrong as well. Um, but for now, it's all been a pleasure as always. Have yourself a great rest of your Wednesday and a great rest of your week whenever you're listening to this. And uh, we'll be back again next Wednesday morning as per usual with the Saturday Blitz podcast. Have a great one.